Welcome back, podcast fans, to a new episode of First Online with Franz, There's No Place Like Art, featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the arts. Today, I have a very exciting program planned. It's about the Trauma Brain Project. This is a very unique theatrical narrative about the personal journey of one of its survivors, playwright Dale Ann Hunt. I was not only invited to be the moderator of a panel of esteemed doctors and neurologists, but also to tape the actual program and get to share that with you. The play was about this woman surviving sexual trauma. The play is, shows three women, a young woman, a middle-aged woman, and an older woman. And it talks about how she regresses back to these stages of her life to learn that, in fact, her PTSD and epilepsy, all of these symptoms were manifestations of being sexually abused as a five-year-old child. And so here we have an opportunity to talk about how the arts can heal through this project. Today, we get to talk with Marsha Mason, who was one of the actresses in the program, and she's going to share a little bit with us about how she got involved and how the arts are important to her. Marsha, do we have you on the phone? Hello, Marsha Mason. <laughs> Welcome to First Online with Fran. So glad that you're taking time out of your busy schedule to share with our audiences about how important the arts are in our world. But first, let's begin with your latest project, Loved Your Performance in the Trauma Brain Project. And I would like you to share a little bit uh, with our audience about how you got involved with this program. I got involved with the Trauma Brain Project through Diane Ainsley, who had directed it. And she and I are very old friends. We went to acting class together years ago in New York City under Daryl Hickman. And we've stayed in touch with each other over the years. And she told me about this very special project. And she sent, I asked her to send me the script. And I read the script, and I was so deeply moved that I uh, called her and said, listen, if you ever need me at all to do this project, I'd be happy to. So fortunately, serendipitously, they were planning a project performance here in New York City, and um, I signed on, and I've subsequently told them whenever I'm available, I'd be happy to do it again for them wherever they may decide to go. I know they want to entice brain surgeons as well as the hospitals and also prisons, women's prisons in particular. So, and I think it's a very worthy cause. So I said, of course, I will make myself available whenever possible. And what is it about this play that struck you? You know, not only the topic, but also the theme of the, the play. Well, I think at this particular time in history, if you will, the whole understanding of what it means to be a woman and also a woman and how they are treated 
and dealt with both from mental health, physical health, emotional health. So there's that backdrop, if you will. But I think the thing that most specifically is interesting about this particular piece of material is that it is a woman's story and that she so gallantly and bravely wrote beautifully about this issue of traumatic brain and sexual abuse. So I think that sort of connection is really interesting to me. Was there anything Um, as an actor when you were rehearsing the piece that was particularly challenging or a moment perhaps that struck you personally? Well, I think the thing that the first the first thing that struck me about the material was uh, the question of misdiagnosis <laughs> that the idea that there can be a physical manifestation of an emotional trauma that's number 1 and that re- sort of reminds me a little bit about PTSD and what a lot of veterans and people are dealing with also so there's that aspect and to be misdiagnosed through epilepsy or whatever, because you are having a a physical manifestation of an emotional trauma is very, very interesting from an actor's point of view, but also from a mental health point of view and a physical point of view. So I felt that it really put a spotlight, if you will, on the possibility of diagnostic information that doctors of all three areas should deal with, whether you're a psychologist, psychiatrist, surgeon, or neurosurgeon, uh, or a neurologist. Marsha, I think you're bringing up a very important point, and that is how the arts can be used to heal and to raise awareness. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. exactly, it's just, it's such a shame that there are so many people who perceive the arts, like, you know, I go to the theater, you know, for escape or whatever, and they do not perceive the arts as being a vitally important force. What would you say to those naysayers about the importance of the arts? Well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily convince somebody if they have a different opinion. However, uh, I do think they that all of us need to be more open about the discussion, if you will. And that's why I think it's very important that this piece get done uh, and done again and again and again uh, in various formats or um, areas, whether it's in a theater, a prison, a hospital, conference room, whatever, because I do think it's very informative. How have you personally become, uh, were touched by the arts? How did you get into this business? How did you know that this was what you wanted to do? You mean being an actor? Yes. I guess it happened in my, sort of my first year of high school, although I had an uncle who used to call me Sarah, and I asked why, and he (laughs) said, do you you don't know who Sarah Bernhardt is? is. And I didn't, of course, at nine. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that was very interesting. Um, uh, and, but it didn't really kind of come alive for me until my freshman year in high school, where because I went to a school, a high school in St. Louis, a Catholic girls' school, where art 
and drama and speech were part and par- parcel of the overall curriculum. That's not so the norm. I belong- yes, exactly. So I, I belong to the drama club and the debate team and took art classes. And I just think it's, I mean, what we're fighting back now after all these years is the necessity of having arts in the schools. And I just don't understand the politics in Washington in terms of Congress. Over the years, they have just constantly said that they are for education, and it's the first thing that gets cut. And yet all the research proves that interest in music and art and fine art and dramatic art is necessary to inspire and give strength to young people to have a reason to live, to flourish, and to bring something and give something back to society. So it's just mind-boggling that Washington does what it does and has been doing it over the years. I mean, I was on the NEA Council, the National Endowment for the Arts, for six years, under Clinton and Bush, and, you know, I just cannot get over how the conservative aspects of Congress have just constantly underrode these basic issues. And this is why I started this program. I was an English Uh, theater teacher, and I saw how it changes young people's lives and why I'm so committed to bringing your voice and the voices of others to our program. Thank you so much, Marcia, for taking time out, and keep doing what you're doing. We love you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Francis, <laughs> and you keep doing what you're doing, too. <laughs> I plan to. Thanks a lot, Marcia. Tonight, what we hope to do is to connect the dots through this amazing panel of women, and we will have an opportunity for you to ask questions. But first, let's introduce our amazing group of women. Uh, We'll start with you. Tell me a little bit about who you are, introduce who you are, what you do, and how you got involved. How did I get here? I'm Pat Gibson, and I'm on the faculty at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and I direct the Epilepsy Information Service. And I first met Del Ann when she was 17 and was working with her as a patient having epilepsy. And I found very soon that this young woman was one of the most talented, creative, dynamic people I had run into. And in fact, when she was 17, I asked her to speak to a conference I was doing of doctors. And she did. She walked into that room, she went to the bathroom and threw up, she walked out on stage (laughs) and gave one of the best talks you have ever heard. She made them laugh, she made them cry. She's a phenomenal singer and and speaker. She was in a a little talent show I did. She was the only one in the talent show with any talent. (laughs) And she can really sing. So, I've kept in touch with her over the years, and about two years ago, Delan called me to tell me what she'd been going through about the physical symptoms that she'd been having and how she'd had this form of therapy that had been helpful to her. 
and I was in the middle of getting ready to put on my 26th annual conference for neurologists and, and nurses and people on the front line of the care of epilepsy. And one of the problems in epilepsy is that we often have to diagnose people with non-epileptic seizures that look just like seizures but are coming from underlying deep conflict and many times it's people who have been abused as children. And in fact, about 50% of the patients on our monitoring unit turn out to have non-epileptic seizures. And I feel often we don't do a very good job in getting them the help they need for many reasons. Lack of resources, lack of insurance covering those kind of therapies, it's a problem. So when Delenn told me about this, I wanted for the people that I follow in my conferences, I wanted them, I knew they needed to know about this. So I asked her, and I asked her with hesitation, because it's a very personal thing. And it's kind of not nice to ask people those things, but I really wanted to help my people. And so I said, Delenn, would you come and be willing to speak about your experience? And she said, I'll think about it. Yeah. And three days later, she called me and she said, Pat, I sat down and wrote this up as a reading, and if I could get some Broadway actresses to come to your meeting in Houston to speak, to do, to perform this, would that work? And I said, oh yeah. <laughs> I'll take you from Broadway actresses, that sounds incredible. <laughs> uh, and I always have very different things in my meetings, as, as some of you will attest, that I think people need to know about, the whole spectrum. You know, I'm trained as a psychiatric social worker, and in my 50 years of career, I have spent most of my life actually looking at, at abuse and trying to help people who have been abused and witnessing the incredible impact that this has on an individual, on a family, on a society. It has incredible impact physically, <coughs> biologically, socially, psychologically, and financially. In fact, I once said at one of our first conferences we had on non-epileptic events, I said, if society ever figures out the cost of abuse, they'll go after that just like they do cigarette smoking now. Mm -hmm. And that's a good start. Thank you. Jane, yeah. Dr. Jane. Yes, I'm Dr. Jane. <laughs> and Dale Ann really allowed this to happen. Actually, well, let me start from my background. I trained in psychoanalysis and hypnotherapy and somehow stumbled upon somatic experiencing and the idea about bringing in the body and having people aware of their experiences and their sensations and how just bringing awareness to what you experience changes things. So imagine you could feel really horrible, but if you could just be present without reacting and just notice what you're experiencing and just follow it, it helps titrate. It really helps the body able to restore and the brain to recalibrate. Anyway, so Dale Ann stumbled into my office because she knew that I was interested and worked with body-mind. That's about it. And she was very responsive, a remarkable <coughs> client, 
because as, uh, as the play demonstrates, she was so determined. And of course people are determined, but what she did that often people don't do is that she would push. People often get afraid of these gut-wrenching, heartbreaking responses. I mean, that's what trauma is, that you have such experiences that the autonomic nervous system shuts down, part of your brain shuts down because you're overwhelmed. And the idea about working with the body and touching the body in certain ways is because you need a physiology to support feeling. And so she was very interested, but as I said, she was so determined and she wanted the table. It usually takes a little bit longer for people to really feel safe and her body was shaking out the trauma. And there was a trust that we developed. But the body knows when you're free to be able to, I'm sorry, I'm getting caught now in, uh, in uh, my excitement about what happened. So that's my experience with Dale and she was remarkable and that's how I'm with the project. Thank you. I think we're finding a common thread here, so let's continue along that line. I'm Dr. Marie Collier. I'm an epileptologist, neurologist. I'm also trained in integrative medicine. I actually just completed a, a yoga teacher certification yesterday. <laughs> Getting the issues out of tissues. And <laughs> And uh, I flew in from Grand Junction, Colorado. I, I run an epilepsy program there in a rural community. And in uh, rural communities, we don't have a lot of the mental health support that we have in, in larger cities. And so you see a lot more of somatization. So I see a lot of non-epileptic seizures. And I met Dale Ann in Houston through Pat Gibson's program and actually Last year I spoke, I mean, yeah, last year I spoke at the Wake Forest program on the role of integrative medicine in epilepsy because a lot of patients with epileptic seizures also have non-epileptic seizures. And so one of the things I want to do, not only help my patients, but also help my colleagues, I'll be forthcoming here and give full disclosure. My biggest obstacle was I'm fine. Right? I'm going to help all these other people that are sick, right? <laughs> I'm fine. And, and so one of the things that yoga and integrative medicine helped me discover was how to help myself. About uh, one million patients a year are losing their doctor to suicide. And if doctors can't heal themselves, how can they help and heal patients? And it's, it's tragic because when you, when you think about medical school, residency, training, nowhere, no one ever said, hey, why don't you work on your own issues before you go and put your hands on another patient to try and help them with theirs? So you end up with doctors like Dr. Finger, <laughs> heaven forbid. So I'm here to support Dale Ann. I went up to her after the program and said, 
Where do you want my statement? <laughs> where, do you, where do you want me to put in my, my testimonial? And she was like, right on the front of our website, and it is. It's a catalyst for change, a catalyst to heal our disease care system. And we're going to help each other. And it's not like I'm the doctor and you're the patient. We all need healing as a community. And so I'm here to be a part of that, and I'm honored. And thank you all. Amen to that. <laughs> um, my name is Dr. Bianca Hardin. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and somatic experiencing practitioner. I'm very big into heal or heal, thy, heal thyself, and it's really important that we think about the impact of the work that it has on us, and so I'm a big believer in that as well. Um, I've been working with child sexual abuse in my clinical practice for over 20 years, and I'm very passionate about preventing child sexual abuse, about shining a light on sexual abuse, sexual assault, giving voice to people's stories and narratives. And there's a conspiracy of silence that happens where people are silenced. And this is why I'm a part of this project, because this is giving voice, and this is very meaningful to me. So I've been doing the work, and something was missing, and it was the wisdom of the body. So I came across somatic experiencing, and <laughs> I, um, it changed me, it rewired me, it changed my work, and I've seen it do amazing things for the clients that I'm working with. Last fall, I got an email to be invited to be on this panel. I looked at the email and I said, how can this be possible that I could be a part of this amazing project? Of course I'm coming. Yes, yes, and yes. And then I sat watching it the first time, and then I sat on the panel and I thought, this is what I'm meant to do. This, this work is so important. I feel like really emotional about it. But it was so moving, so amazing. And Dale Ann said, I think we're gonna go to New York to do this. Do you wanna come? And I'm like, yes, of course, I'm coming. And so the performance is riveting. The panel is amazing. You all are bearing witness to something very important. And I'm just really honored to be here. And I'm honored that you all are here as well. And I'm so happy to be a part of Dale Ann's journey, and I'm just a long ride and so happy to be here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Pega. Yeah, so my name is Pega Afro. I'm an epileptologist, and I recently moved from University of Utah to Cornell. And the way I got involved with this project is my former fellow and my current dear colleague, Marie, <laughs> sent me an email and said, hey, you're moving to New York. <laughs> I, I know Dale Ann. She's going to do this show. Do you want to be in it? I said, sure. And it was, <laughs> it was a very important topic for me because um, in my previous practice, I used to unfortunately see a lot of patients with non-epileptic seizures and with history of abuse and this condition can be more common or less common in some states versus others depending on statistics of abuse in each state and every time I diagnosed them with non-epileptic seizures and they told me their story I was very honored to hear that story but eventually I offered them whatever treatments was available but after that, I always felt helpless because many of the treatments fail. 
And so when I was reading this beautifully written a script, I felt that is a great thing because it actually frees the patient from the doctor and it gives mm -hmm. them a method that they can heal themselves mm -hmm. and that, that freedom is the most important thing. Thank so. you. Thank you. They're pretty amazing. Well, I talk about a tough act to follow. <laughs> My background is in theater education and I'm a proponent of using theater as a strategy to enlighten and to raise awareness. And what's interesting about this experiment that we're doing here is that it combines the artistic invention with a scientific interpretation. We talked a little bit uh, yesterday about how the play is able to facilitate so much education. There's so much knowledge in that narrative, in that voice. And what I would like us to, to start a conversation is to get inside that bubble. And where, where, from your medical perspective, what point in the play struck you and said, this is what I do, and this is an example of what I do? So I'm just going to open it up to any of you. One of the things that struck me, I mean, and remember I lived much of this with Dale Ann. I remember her telling me that she could stop the seizures, that she would stare at a knob. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was amazing when I read this, you know, like 20 years ago, I remember those things. But the thing about her script, one of the things in the script that really struck me was the talk about the hips and the body shaming. And uh, much of my work is aimed at prevent or, or trying to prevent stigma around epilepsy, which is really a big problem. And the shame that people feel in regard to any kind of, of you know, certain kinds of medical problems have stigma attached to them. And I thought that was so beautifully written and you could feel this and, and just how toxic it is. We, you know, all of us, the women in particular, are so prone to judge ourselves. None of, I don't care what you look like, there's something wrong with you, you know. And, but that is a lot of what I do in my work is, is to fight stigma. And I've done a 20-year project with fourth graders in my county trying to with teach them and change graders. the world view. Because I, I was on a public radio program and a psychiatrist called in and said, you do know that the most important time to change the world view of children is eight and nine, around fourth grade. Oh that is when they're forming their view of the world. And I simply chose them because they were the nicest age. <laughs> <laughs> Kindergarten, you don't want to talk to those kids. They'll tell you things you don't want to know. <laughs> Middle school, they're all you know hypochondriacal. No, you don't mess with them. You know, fourth graders, they're still kind and sweet and, and they're, they're curious. But th that was the thing that that area about and it was beautifully written um, about the hips, that body shape. Jane. Well, in early on when you hear her gut-wrenching feelings and not knowing where they're coming from <coughs> and how we know more and more now but not enough that trauma is the root of these physical manifestations and if you imagine that the time the point at which 
somebody's experiencing a life threat. The energy that we mobilize instinctively to prepare for fight or flight is the kind of energy uh, you hear once in a while that somebody, a woman five feet tall, lifts a car that's mm -hmm. 2,000 pounds mm -hmm. because her child's arm mm -hmm. is impaled under the tire. Mm -hmm. Because that's the enormity of the fight response. That's the enormity of the energy. So imagine at the point where someone is threatened and that energy has nowhere to go. That's what trauma is. You can't flee, you can't fight, you're absolutely helpless. Immobilized. But here's that, that frozen immobilized, and here's all that instinctive energy that creates tremendous dysregulation in the nervous system and illness. And people are able to do the best that they can do. But their bodies, people often have first thing that often happens because if you're not safe, your digestive system's not going to work. So there's constipation, there's diarrhea, mm -hmm. migraines are frequent. Mm -hmm. And so then people often are running from one doctor to another, and then doctors don't know. And so the idea that you pick up that I would love if more clinicians knew, when you hear about the, the, the multiplicity of different physical symptoms and psychological symptoms, to consider. And mm -hmm. the problem also is, is that trauma memories aren't experienced as memories. They're experienced as symptoms because when there's a tremendous upheaval in emotion, it prevents the part of the mind that we think of as uh, remembering narrative, time, and place. So that's diminished. You have the memory, but it's encoded in the body. So when you have an experience, you don't say, oh, I remember when that happened. You just have these horrible physical symptoms and sometimes illnesses. So it's not like a person's going to know, I think I've got some traumatic reactions going on. So that's why the need for these kind of panels and this kind of experience so people begin to recognize that all those symptoms, that something's going on, that the root can be trauma, and that there's a body-oriented approach. I was schooled in analysis. I've been on the faculty of analytic institutes. but. You know, you can't talk to a person about how to feel safe. The, the, the visceral feeling of safety really comes from working with the body. So this is fantastic. I wish this could happen more often. And one of the things, Marie, that you, you talked about that I'd like you to share with the audience is how it's so elusive. You know, you don't, you, you get the, you know, she had the, the test and it's like, oh, you're epileptic, but it's not. Could you talk a little bit about that moment? In the flood. Sure, sure. So <clears throat> I think for me, the first time I saw this performance, uh, it struck me, whoa, yeah, of course she's having abnormal discharges from the temporal lobe region, because what's there at the hippocampus? What does the hippocampus do? Hippocampus do, it stores memory, right? So you have abnormal areas of discharges from an area where you have memory. And frequently I have patients complain, especially patients with a history of trauma, post-traumatic stress, complain of memory issues. Because what happens if you start remembering, you're going to start remembering. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that it alters the brain structure. And that was something that really, really hit home is that, wow trauma can alter 
the structure of your brain. Mm -hmm. That is profound. And the earlier that happens, the more profound that abnormality mm -hmm. can be. And that could potentially be why. You know, one of the things, I've got so many thoughts in my head, but one of the <laughs> things they talked about at that conference, Dennis Spencer, he's a neurosurgeon who um, is with the American Epilepsy Society. He got up and he spoke and he said, it's time we stop looking at the psychiatric comorbidities of epilepsy as comorbidities. It's part of the disease process. And I was like, oh, I just got struck by lightning. I mean, that was like, oh my God, that just hit my soul. Because as physicians, as epileptologists, it doesn't have anything to do with like, it's not the fault of people who trained me. Um, <laughs> but it's just the, the nature of it, of how, we're, of how we're trained. We're not trained to address the psychiatric comorbidities. That's for you guys. That's for psychiatry. That's for somebody else. We, we say, okay, well, you've got depression. You've got all these other issues going on. Because 30% of patients with depression are at risk for developing epilepsy and of course patients with epilepsy are at risk for uh, developing depression so I call it deprolepsy <laughs> uh, you know and if you've got I call the holy trinity migradepra epilepsy if you've got migraines depression and epilepsy so there's so much to this and it goes back to how you're wired at a very early age and how you're wired because of trauma but do people know do people in medicine and psychiatry do they know no. So the problem with patients with epilepsy is they don't meet the classic DSM criteria for depression. Their depression is very different in how it manifests and, and, and how it responds to treatment. It, there's a chasm. It's still there. It's been there for 50 years. And that's why we're having this conversation. So hopefully we can bridge that chasm. We can create education. We can create that dialogue. And I would also offer that it's not that doctors don't know what's wrong when a patient presents with unexplainable neurologic symptoms. There's not a drug for it. And we can't do surgery. If I had a mic, I would drop it right now. But, <laughs> but you know, it, there's not a drug for it. That's but there is theater, and we can raise, you know, raise awareness through theater. So, in thinking about my different part of this, I am a feminist relational strength-based psychotherapist, and the way it relates to how I work is really thinking about Dale Ann's resilience. You know, I think everyone has the innate capacity to heal when given the right circumstances, right? She is a strong woman, as are so many other survivors. And so I just saw great strength in her journey, in her thirst for her own healing. And when given the right circumstances, the healing did happen and is happening now. So that's one thing that stands out for me. The other thing is, as a relational psychotherapist, Dr. Judith Herman is one of my sheroes, and she has a three-stage model of healing, right? And the third stage is connection. And so that's what Dalian is doing now. She is sharing her story and connecting and inspiring other survivors. So I think, just to add on, I do, I'm a body-based therapist, but from my lens, that, you know, strength-based, Given the right circumstances, we all have the innate capacity to heal, and the importance of connection and sharing story is really important to me. Thank you. Peggy? 
Yeah, so actually when I first read this play, the most important sentence that captured me was so beautifully um, communicating the experience of dissociation. It started with, mm -hmm. I retreat into my bubble. Mm -hmm. And I found that sentence like priceless. And then the second thing I really liked about it is so honestly sharing experiences of having multiple images of oneself. Our consciousness, when not traumatized, every moment makes an image of me, fuse it with the previous images, and introduce me, my image, as Pega. Now, if I had trauma, I would have multiple <coughs> images that are not fused, and I will go back and forth between them. It happens that if I have epilepsy in my temporal lobe and my temporal lobe is discharging abnormally, just like Marie said, those memories can flash out and go up, in and out, up and down, and that would be epilepsy. However, if I had trauma and physiology is not playing its role right, I can have, without having abnormal discharges in the brain, very similar experiences. Different images of me at different ages are popping up, and I'm not able to make a cohesive image of myself at this moment. And I felt like this was brilliant, that somebody was able to write it so beautifully. Thank you. I would like to add to that. Somewhere in the production, you hear her say, that's it, girl. That's what you need to do. So mm -hmm. she's, you know, she's talking to her little girl self. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. that's really remarkable, because what we strive for uh, in somatic experiencing and body work is not to have the person just in those gut-wrenching feelings, because then you're just in it. But the idea about being able to be in touch with that, but at the same time that the rational thinking brain is online. So you have the observer. Mm -hmm. And that's something we usually need to educate clients mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. So when they come into this, you know, even just asking a person just to notice what's going on in their body is asking them to use their mind. So for her to be able to say, okay, girl, you need to do this, and she didn't learn from our work together is mm -hmm. really extraordinary. She'd been doing that uh, since a very young Yeah, age. like look at the, what she was saying. Which, mm -hmm. But so it was extraordinary. It's just really extraordinary how she could bring these instinctual feelings, gut-level harsher feelings, and also a mind that's making sense out of it. She brought that. She didn't learn that in therapy. She brought that. That was really outstanding. So how do you, as practicing physicians and psychiatrists, how do you use the resources that you have to help patients to get better? Where do you start? Well, I would start with, with the relationship. And so one thing that's really important with working with trauma survivors is using invitational language, asking questions. When you're traumatized, you don't have a sense of control and power in the situation. And so it's really important to say, is it okay if we talk about this? When I did the grounding, I said, I would like to invite you to do this if you're comfortable. And so I think giving a sense of control back to the patient is really important and inviting them, as well as sharing with them what you're doing. So the psychoeducation is really important and that's part of empowering them is understanding what you're doing. I think a lot of traditional psychotherapy just expects people to kind of know what to do. I'm gonna sit here and listen and you talk, it'll be 55 minutes, you know, tell me everything. And this, you wanna educate them about trauma, the nervous system, healing, and the work that you're doing. And so I think with that, then 
trust begins and safety. And I think you start slow and you start where they're at. Well, I just want to add to that because I was thinking about, you know, what about helping people identify resources, right? And it just seems it's so timely, need to, right, for people to come forth. This just feels so timely. And also, a few of us, you know, were together yesterday, and the excitement about what happens neurologically. And then also speaking with Pat, when she said about even non-epileptic seizures, and I said, oh, no, 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 I would never take a client on who has seizures. She, well, why not? Well, because I have this idea, right, that someone's going to convulse on the floor and wouldn't know what to do. And so the idea about being educated about just how do you learn to do with that. So just, you know, the, the multi-collaboration, and if we, it just, it just felt like such a luxury, but so necessary to have these kinds of conversations. If I may add to that. Go ahead. Um, so somebody comes with paroxysmal events of shaking. I think the, the, the first step is to diagnose is this epilepsy or non-epileptic seizures. Once a non-epileptic seizures is diagnosed, we usually do a test called video EG. We have a video and we have the EG. We look at the episode itself. We look at the brain waves. And if we have the episodes and the brain waves show a normal individual, we say, OK, this is a non-epileptic seizure. Just means the brain is not abnormally discharging when the patient is having the attack. Then the second step is giving the news to the patient. Obviously, we all want to give the news in a way that is not traumatic to the patient. The patient can listen to it and accept it without having to relieve some the same experience without having psychologists in the room. So it's very important the patient feel respected at that moment. Then the third step comes the treatment, and that is where all the hardship comes. Currently, the most common treatments and the approved one is to treat the underlying mood disorder, antidepressant, send for CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. After that, many times, the patient doesn't respond to anything. Mm -hmm. And this is when these treatments that are currently not necessarily studied or approved become a question, should the patient use them? Why they're on their own accord? And why not if everything else has failed? I'd just like to add, you know, my first experience with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, and I, I hate that name because if you do the abbreviation, it's penis. <laughs> P-N-E-S. We've never come up with a very good name for it. It's pretty terrible. Uh, but basically, my first experience was actually seeing a patient in the epilepsy monitoring unit, the video EEG, uh, Dr. Afra is referring to, and the patient is reliving the trauma through pelvic thrusting. You could just like the, and the EEG doesn't show any abnor abnormal, abnormal epileptiform abnormalities, and their eyes are closed, they're in, they're reliving it, and you can just see it, and it's, it's pretty tragic and catastrophic to see. It's fairly pathognomonic for psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. And the, there's so many challenges. You get patients, most patients aren't on mycelin and phenobarbital anymore, but you know, they can be on upwards of three to four to five medications when they come in and see you still God. seizing. And then the other thing is education, because what happens as soon as you put the, psych the psychogenic non-epileptic seizure diagnosis in their chart, they go to the ER and they're told their seizures are fake. <sighs> fake seizures. And uh, I hear that a lot. And, and so I try to 
educate patients that this is not something that you have control over, this is not your fault, mm -hmm. uh, because then there's an, oh, there's a whole other thing of guilt that comes with that. So it's so complex, it's beyond complex, and I'm so excited to be here having a dialogue about it, because this dialogue is revolutionary, and I, I hope you guys realize and that. And I would like to open up this dialogue for our audience. Yes. Question. Yeah. How do you disseminate this information to the medical professionals? There are articles, and we also, this is a common uh, topic that we have at our national conferences. It's a, it's a big issue, and we do have, uh, in fact, we've had uh, several national conferences just on this particular topic. But it, it's a, it, but remember, we're reaching the epilepsy specialist. It's the other people out there that they may never get to. Not all patients with these symptoms get to an epilepsy specialist. But there, there is a lot written about it. There's books on it. We have time Did you for have one. Any yeah, maybe, maybe go. One more question way back there. From a completely different angle, I have a question about the, the, the beautiful gender bias we've seen tonight. Not a man has been on the stage, which I think is fantastic. We're, we're talking yeah. about, we're talking with experts and artists who are all women, and I think that's a sea change in the world, and I think we should all applaud that. But I'm curious. Thank you. I'm curious about from the experts. Is there a gender bias in this field? It, is, are you, is there, is there a preponderance of this affliction in women and girls as opposed to men and boys? Mm, excellent question. Do we know that? Have we disaggregated that gender data? Well, I don't think we exactly know the answer. There is a perception that this problem is more prevalent in women, but there is something we call gender differences in coming in, in basically letting people know what your problems is or, 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 or letting the problem out. So as women experience all kinds of somatic symptoms earlier than men in their 20s and 30s, once men hit their 60s, 70s, maybe 50s, all the somatization problems come out. Mm -hmm. And because there is a gender difference in kind of uh, letting problems out, uh -huh. it's very uh, hard to know the precise answer. But the perceived answer is that they are more common in women. How truthful that is, is for future to tell. Because as the new generations come up, the gender differences are less, so the younger men may decide to somatize earlier, and this kind of a gap may narrow. I'm just to follow up to that, I'm just wondering about the PTSD in, in the men and boys who are coming forth from the Catholic Church pedophilia scandal. Yeah. Is this coming into your work? So I, I can speak a little bit to that in terms of prevalence rates of child sexual abuse. Typically, the, the rates are one in four women and one in six boys. And so there's an issue with underreporting, mm -hmm. and there's an issue with cultural issues that prevent people from, for, from feeling comfortable disclosing, right? So it's hard to say, and I think there's a lot of cultural variables that prevent men from disclosing their sexual abuse and from seeking treatment. I think it's a big issue, and there's a great website called oneinsix.org that speaks to this specifically that I think is really important. Unfortunately, this is just the start of a conversation. We will continue outside in the lobby and you'll have an opportunity to ask questions if you didn't have that opportunity now and you can also visit the brain 
uh, the Trauma Brain Project website and send your questions to there as well. But you have some other announcements to make. Oh, I don't know if it's an announcement, but thank you. My name is Marissa Gavami, and uh, I'm an artist as well as an advocate. I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called Healing Tree. It stands for Healing Trauma Resources, Education, and Empowerment. So I'm sure that a lot of you watching tonight have been going, what do we do about this, and, and sort of where do we go from here, because this is a huge issue. So our mission is to transform how society responds to abuse and interpersonal trauma. Um, I, too, was diagnosed with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures after some trauma um, and had a complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I made a recovery after having somatic experiencing, EMDR, other types of trauma-focused treatment modalities. And um, I thought, well, you know, I looked around and I looked at all these people who also had symptoms related to some sort of trauma and they were not being diagnosed with trauma. They were being told they had a brain chemistry problem. They were being told they had you know, a genetic issue that they would always be this way. Here's your medicine, cope with it for the rest of your life. And I thought that was wrong. And there were a lot of people who agreed with me in the trauma field. And that field was not integrated with mental health and medicine, which is what we're talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to volunteer with an organization who was doing something about it. And I couldn't find one, so I started one. So, um, yes. so we, uh, yes. We have some resources, so if you're interested in learning more about all of this, we have, um, you know, we want to connect survivors and their loved ones with resources necessary for healing rather than coping. So there are, you know, lists of articles, tons of articles about all sorts of abuse through a trauma-focused lens and all sorts of, you know, physical and, and mental problems through a trauma-focused lens. There's videos, there's a recommended reading list, um, there's an approved care network where we can hook people up with therapists who get it. And then there's education. We give CEUs to doctors to help them understand you know, more about the, the trauma side. And then there's the, the arts. The empowerment piece is really the arts. So um, that's why I'm so excited to be here tonight, because what better way to kind of change society's response to something than tapping into the arts? So I'll have some brochures if anybody wants to connect. And you know, just if your interest is piqued, or if you or somebody else is, is needing help, hopefully we can point you in the right direction. And also to continue the work that has been started here, donations will gladly be accepted. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. To learn more about the mission of the Trauma Brain Project and donate your support, please visit www.thetraumabrainproject.com. How have the arts impacted your life? Fran would love to hear from you. Contact her at www.firstonlinewithfran.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. See you next episode. Thank you. This program has been recorded at We Chief Productions and produced by March Hair Media. Go to marchhairmedia.me.